Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Human sacrifice has been practiced across many ancient cultures, from the Celts in England to the Aztecs in Mesoamerica to the Vikings in Scandinavia. Mark Pagel, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Reading, describes the purpose behind human sacrifice like this. Quote, Imagine you lived in a society that is highly stratified, and the winners, or so-called elite of that society, would, on certain occasions, just grab someone off the street and sacrifice them. It's an effective tactic to warn people that the elite are powerful and to get them to toe the line. It doesn't mean that sacrifice is just or right, but it does serve to control a society." End quote. And when the Hernandez brothers rolled into a small, sleepy Mexican town, they were willing to go to any lengths to establish that control and wield it however they saw fit. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today we're going to take a deep dive into the Hernandez Brothers cult. Begun by two con men in Mexico looking for power and money, this cult eventually descended into forced orgies and blood sacrifices, all spurred on by a woman they called the High Priestess of Blood. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. The Hernandez Brothers cult was founded by Santos and Cayetano Hernandez in 1962 in a small village in northern Mexico called Yerba Buena. The cult grew to number about 50 people, nearly every resident of this small town. So little is known about the cult, the members, or the town itself that it's almost like it never existed, a nightmare invented to scare children. But the cult and the people they sacrificed and murdered were very real. 
almost nothing is known about the Hernandez brothers before they started their cult. We do know that they were simple con men, traveling around Mexico, trying out various get-rich-quick schemes and small-time rackets. But then they had an idea for a way to gain sustainable money and power. They would start their own cult. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here. A reminder, she's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. According to David W. Maurer, author of The Big Con, the story of the confidence man and the confidence game, con men are those who will gain someone's trust for the express purpose of exploiting it. They often use the promise of riches to draw in potential marks, then leave town before anyone gets wise. But con men are more than simple thieves. For them, the fun is in the act of manipulating and outsmarting their targets. This is why they tend to racketeer instead of perpetrating hit-and-run crimes like home invasions or gas station holdups. That said, it's still unusual for con men to decide to start a cult. Not even police seem to understand where the brothers came up with the idea, whether they had seen a cult on TV or had dabbled in one themselves. There's no way to know. Given that Mexico is a Catholic-majority country, it's possible they saw how much money the Catholic Church raised in collection basket donations during each Sunday Mass and realized that religion was a moneymaker. But again, that's just speculation. Furthermore, the brothers seem to have little to no concern about the possible victims of their schemes. They were more concerned about a potential financial gain. The brothers exhibit classic psychopathic traits. They knew that their lies would hurt people, but felt no remorse. In fact, psychopaths like lying because it gives them power over other people. According to Maria Konnikova, author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It, Every Time, psychopathy coupled with narcissism and a general Machiavellian attitude create the perfect con artists. They find the cons to be thrilling, and the higher the stakes, the better. Of course, statistically, it would be incredibly rare for two psychopaths to be born into the same family, as only 1% of the population are true psychopaths. But if one brother was a psychopath and both were narcissists, it's easy to see where they could have fed each other's more degenerate tendencies. The brothers thought that the best way for their new scheme to succeed would be to look for potential cult members that had little education and were isolated from the larger world. The town of Yerba Buena fits the bill perfectly. Set in the Sierra Madre Mountains between Mexico City and the U.S. border, the town of Yerba Buena was struggling. There were only 50 inhabitants in the small village, which was largely isolated from the rest of Mexico. The residents had no electricity, no telephones, and only a single road leading in or out. The residents were impoverished, living on meager means. It was the perfect place for a cult to thrive, completely unnoticed by the world at large. This was actually a pretty risky move for a variety of reasons. At the time, beginning a religiously subversive cult in Mexico could be akin to signing your own death warrant. The Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, was the authoritarian government that ruled Mexico for 71 years, from 1929 until 2000. During this time, it was not uncommon for the PRI to round up entire villages of people deemed subversive and burn their village to the ground. Like any authoritarian government, they sought compliance, submission, and sameness from their citizens. 
divergence of any kind was quickly squelched. The Hernandez brothers began their cult in the 1960s at the height of political turmoil. The period between the 1960s and 1982 would come to be known as the Dirty War. The Mexican government would kill, torture, and disappear thousands of political dissidents, leftist guerrillas, students, and activists. This was according to an 859-page report released by the government in 2006, officially taking responsibility for the dirty war. In the 1960s, Mexico was as cut off from the rest of the world as Yerba Buena was cut off from the rest of Mexico. It was an insular place, full of political unrest. So while it was risky to begin a cult, in some ways the political climate created a shield for the Hernandez brothers to hide behind. With the majority of the country embroiled in a war against their own government, nobody was paying attention to a small, single-road town like Yerba Buena. The chaos outside the town was the perfect smokescreen. Although the Hernandez brothers specifically chose Yerba Buena because of the residents' location and lack of education, in general, cult members can vary in age, race, and socioeconomic background. According to John G. Clark, Jr., a former assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the Harvard University Medical School, they have one thing in common, vulnerability. For the townspeople of Yerba Buena, that vulnerability came in the form of hardship, poverty, food scarcity, and lack of education. For others, it could be a recent breakup, leaving home for the first time, or a deep sense of unfulfilled dreams or purpose. The brothers used the residents' lack of education to their advantage. They knew they couldn't simply march into town and demand money. They needed a backstory or mythology, something to justify why the townspeople should follow them. Their fake religion needed a story. So they borrowed a mythology from an ancient religion and told the villagers that they were prophets of the powerful Inca gods. And furthermore, that those Inca gods would give the townspeople wealth and prosperity in exchange for their worship. So desperate were the inhabitants of Yerba Buena, they might have gone along with anything for the promise of three square meals a day. If the brothers had done a little more research, they might have constructed their story a bit differently. The Inca civilization was actually located in ancient Peru in South America, at one point becoming the largest civilization in the ancient world though it never extended into Mexico. So it wouldn't really make sense for their prophets to show up in Yerba Buena. The villagers had likely never heard of the Incas or anything to do with the Inca religion, as the primary religion in Mexico was Catholicism and the villagers were uneducated in South American history. The Inca religion was concerned mostly with trying to assert some control over the natural world, earthquakes, flooding, storms, anything that would spell disaster for their civilization. The Incas worshipped Inti, the sun god, and also Mama Quilla, the moon goddess, among others. In Cuzco, the Inca capital, the two gods were represented by spectacular metal statues and worshipped by priests and priestesses. The high priest of the sun was the most powerful priest in the Inca empire, chosen from noble lineage. All other priests and priestesses submitted to him. He was second only to the Sapa Inca, or emperor, in the Inca hierarchy. The Incas established sacred sites all over their territory and in every new place they conquered, favoring geographical formations like natural springs, caves, and mountaintops, where important ceremonies would take place. 
It's doubtful that the Hernandez brothers had this much knowledge of the Incas when they came upon the unwitting residents of Yerba Buena. But nevertheless, the townspeople actually accepted the brothers' claim that they were prophets of the Inca gods. This claim may seem outlandish, but the brothers accompanied it with a standard practice in cults called love bombing, which can also be seen at the beginning of abusive romantic relationships. Essentially, the victim, or potential recruit, is praised, given affection, told how wonderful they are. The person feels love like they never have before. The brothers wrapped the love bombing phase into faux Inca rituals that they created. They would take the villagers into caves surrounding the village. There, the brothers would tell them that they had been specially selected by the gods to follow them. They gave these villagers a sense of importance and destiny they'd never before felt. The brothers would give the villagers drugs, marijuana and peyote, before the rituals to help subdue them and make their minds more pliable. Peyote is a drug derived from a small cactus native to Mexico and has psychoactive and hallucinogenic properties. It has a long history of being used in Native American rituals and for medicinal purposes. Its effects last for 10 to 12 hours, and it can cause both visual and auditory hallucinations. Typically, users will experience what is known as a peyote trip. For some, this means feeling, hearing, and seeing things more clearly than they ever have. The drug can also make sex feel much more intense. Depending on your preferences, that might be a good thing. For others, it means traveling to a completely different world where everything feels surreal and mystical. For some, this world is made of rainbows or filled with bliss. But for others, it's a nightmarish hellscape, pricking their every fear. These peyote experiences can quickly turn into a vile 10-hour experience. As the villagers began to experience the drug's effects, the brothers would bang on drums and chant nonsense, working the villagers up into a frenzy. After the brothers had used the rituals to bring the villagers into their cult, they told them that the Inca gods required money, a sort of tax, that they needed to give to the brothers as their profits. In exchange, the gods would reveal gold and hidden treasures in nearby caves. And the villagers believed them. For several weeks, the brothers were able to stay in the town of Yerba Buena. They lived for free in their residents' homes, taking whatever food and drink they wanted, while the cult members gave them any money they possessed. They relished the perks that their status as Inca prophets accorded them, but it wasn't long before they wanted more. The brothers decided to up the ante. They also wanted sex, and on their own twisted terms. We'll look at those twisted terms after this break. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. 
Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And now, back to the story. Several weeks into running their Inca cult con on the people of Yerba Buena in 1962, the Hernandez brothers were thirsty for more power. The brothers took the villagers into the caves for another ritual, but this time they waited until their followers were incapacitated by drugs to sexually abuse them. Love bombing is only the first phase in an abusive cycle, and the Hernandez were moving on to stage two. The next phase is called devaluation. The abuser will find the victim at fault somehow and degrade and debase them. The victim has grown so attached to the abuser because of the love bombing that they will change their behavior to suit him or her. The abuser will then shower them with love again, reinforcing the idea that only by following the abuser's rules can the victim be happy. Eventually, the brothers were able to coerce their followers, both male and female, into drug-induced orgies. But it wasn't just the drugs that gave the brothers their control. It was also something more ephemeral. California Institute of Technology psychologist John Patrick Peterson has argued that it's humans' desire for comfort that draws them into cults. And cult leaders exploit this desire by promising their followers otherwise unattainable goals, like financial security, constant peace of mind, perfect health, and eternal life. Cult leaders use this need to further psychologically manipulate their followers. According to Dr. Clark, Quote, eventually they keep the mark involved in group ecstatic activities or use meditation, obsessive praying, constant lecturing or preaching, or lack of sleep to maintain the mind in a constantly debilitated state, end quote. In other cults, the leaders would also need to isolate their followers to maintain their power. But in a small remote town like Yerba Buena, this never became an issue. They were already isolated. The brothers continued their cult for many months. The villagers gave them money, food, and sex. The brothers thought they had hit the jackpot. For a long time, the villagers waited for a return on their investment. They had put up with being taxed and abused, but no reprieve from the Inca gods came. The brothers had promised them gold from the very caves where the orgies took place, but none revealed itself. Finally, the villagers began to grow impatient and suspicious. Amongst themselves, they started to question the brothers' claims that they were prophets. After all, they had done everything that the so-called prophets asked of them. So why weren't the Inca gods helping them in return? In the fall of 1962, two cult members decided to approach the brothers directly with their doubts. After the brothers had gathered everyone into a cave for another ritual, the two members stepped forward and demanded concrete proof that the brothers really were Inca prophets. The brothers were shocked, but they were also veteran con men. They didn't let their masks slip. They told the doubting cult members that the gods didn't respond to demands, but they would pray for one of them to appear. Once they were on their own, though, the brothers panicked. Faced with the complete loss of their power and revenue stream, what kind of proof could they come up with? Finally, they hatched a new scheme they decided to travel to Monterey, a Mexican city ringed by mountains, to find a sex worker to impersonate an Inca god. She would become their proof. The brothers thought that a sex worker would be more willing to participate in a con than an average person. 
and they could simply pay her for her time and then send her on her way. They must have thought that they lucked out when they met a pretty young sex worker named Magdalena Solis. She quickly agreed to the brothers' plan, but ended up taking the cult into even darker territory, down a path of human sacrifice, bloodletting, and murder. In the fall of 1962, the Hernandez brothers traveled to the city of Monterey in search of a sex worker to take part in their scheme, eventually coming into contact with a woman named Magdalena Solis. Magdalena had been born in Monterey, Mexico in 1930 to an impoverished family, including an older brother named Eleazar. With few options available to her, Magdalena turned to sex work to support herself. By the time the Hernandez brothers reached Monterey in the fall of 1962, Magdalena had been involved in sex work for many years, and Eleazar was acting as her pimp. Having a family member acting as a pimp might sound unusual, but according to a study conducted by the U.S. Justice Department, this practice is still very much in use today. Many men and women who end up in sex work have grown up around it, so it doesn't seem so foreign to them. 30% of current sex workers interviewed said that they had family in the business, so reaching out to a family member for protection and then eventually asking them to be a pimp is relatively common. It's not necessarily safer for a sex worker to have a pimp who is also a family member. It's more of a natural extension of who they might know with experience in the industry. The night the Hernandez brothers made contact with Magdalena, they had been driving around the streets of Monterey making contact with sex workers and looking for one who would impersonate an Inca goddess. They were desperate to find someone who would help them quiet the doubts of the villagers back in Yerba Buena, so their cult and the money and sex it brought them could continue. After paying Eleazar for a night with Magdalena, the brothers believed they had found the perfect woman for their purposes. Magdalena seemed excited by the prospect of pretending to be a goddess, and she had a flair for the dramatic. She and her brother, Eleazar, agreed to be part of the scam, and the two pairs of siblings made their way back to Yerba Buena. Once there, the Hernandez brothers called the villagers back to the caves for another ritual. This time, however, Magdalena was hiding in the caves, waiting for the brothers' signal. The brothers used a simple smokescreen to mask Magdalena's appearance, and she seemed to materialize magically inside the cave. This might seem like an obvious party trick, but since the village of Yerba Buena wasn't readily equipped with a fog machine, the stunt seemed convincing. Magdalena announced that she was the reincarnation of the Aztec goddess Cotlique, and the villagers believed her, even though the Hernandez brothers had previously structured their cult around the Inca religion. The shock of her appearance, combined with the force of her personality, must have had a profound effect on the sheltered villagers. Basing the cult on the Aztec gods from the beginning might have made more sense, as the Aztec civilization had been based in Mexico, unlike the Inca civilization, which was based in Peru. The villagers might have had some prior knowledge of the Aztecs, as some elements of the Aztec religion still mix with the dominant Christian religions in Mexico to this day. The Aztec Empire reached its height between 1345 and 1521 and was ruled over by a high king with an elite military at his disposal. The Aztecs worshipped many gods, the two most important being the Huitzilopochtli, the war and sun god, and Tlaloc, 
the rain god. Kotlikwe, the goddess that Magdalena claimed to be, was the Earth Mother goddess. Magdalena's choice of Kotlikwe as part of her lie may have been an inspired idea. In Aztec legend, Kotlikwe has two sides. She's the Earth Mother that gives life, but also that consumes life. In Aztec art, she's represented as wearing a necklace of severed human hands and hearts, and a skirt made of slithering snakes. As the legend goes, Kotlikwe was a priestess who was sweeping a sacred temple when a ball of feathers drifted down from the sky and impregnated her with the Aztec god of war. Before this god was born, Kotlikwe's other children, gods of the moon and stars, became ashamed of their dishonored mother and tried to kill her. But Kotlikwe was warned of their approach. And when they arrived, the god of war burst from his mother's womb, fully formed as a fearsome warrior. Using a ray of the sun as his weapon, he killed the gods of the moon and stars, symbolizing the sun's victory over the night. When Magdalena appeared as Kotlikwe, she quickly made her bloodthirsty intentions known. It's hard to say whether the brothers had planned the next part or if Magdalena was improvising. She demanded that the two villagers who had expressed their doubt to the brothers be brought before her. She ordered the rest of the villagers to kill the two disbelievers as a human sacrifice. And the cult members, now habituated to take orders and thinking they were in the presence of an actual god, immediately lynched them. The Aztecs actually did have a history of human sacrifice, though they usually sacrificed people they had captured during war as they sought to keep their vast empire under control. The Aztecs took part in what they called flower wars, which were wars undertaken specifically to gain human captives for sacrifice. Such captures were common during times of famine or other crises, when the priests told the people that the gods required regular human sacrifice to be appeased. In a flower war, the Aztec leader and the enemy leader of a separate territory, whose people were also suffering and wanted their own sacrifices, would work out the details beforehand. They would mandate a certain number of captives that each side would take, and then in battle, instead of killing their enemies, each side would capture warriors until they reached the quota. Even though there was something administrative about these wars, it was still life and death for the soldiers, as they would be sacrificed if they were captured. Aztec human sacrifices usually took one of three forms. Decapitation, the heart being removed from the body, or the person being forced to fight in a one-sided battle to the death, in which he alone had to face a group of elite soldiers. The Aztecs considered the best human sacrifice to be that of a warrior who had fought bravely in battle. When the sacrifice took the form of heart removal, the victim would be brought to a temple, often on the top of a mountain, and the priest would cut open the victim's chest, then remove their heart while it was still beating, allowing the blood to run down the temple steps. The Aztecs weren't the only ancient religion to take part in human sacrifice. The Inca religion, which we've already touched on, also included human sacrifice, especially upon the death of a Sapa Inca, or emperor, so that he would have people to accompany him to the afterlife. When the Sapa Inca died in 1527, as many as 4,000 servants, concubines, and officials were sacrificed. Disturbingly, those sacrificed often included children. 
The Incas even had a name for this particular type of sacrifice, which translates to royal obligation. The parents of Inca children considered it an honor to have their children chosen for sacrifice, and it bestowed great privilege onto them and their community. The Incas favored the sacrifice of children to ensure that the best of their civilization went to join their deities in the afterlife. The children were specifically chosen for their beauty, and if they were girls, they had to be virgins. The children would be dressed in finery and well taken care of prior to the ritual, at which point they would either be cut open to have their hearts removed, or they would be strangled. Their blood would be painted onto the statues of the gods. Other methods of sacrificing humans included blows to the head or being buried alive. Researchers have found some of these children's bodies in temples on the tops of mountains, where the freezing temperatures have kept them well-preserved. But it's unclear whether Magdalena was aware of these traditions or purely following a sadistic impulse. After introducing Magdalena to their cult as a goddess and her ordering the deaths of the two villagers, the Hernandez brothers thought that they could continue on with their cult as they had before. Magdalena was supposed to accept money for her time and head back to Monterey with her brother and keep her mouth shut about what was happening in Yerba Buena. Instead, Magdalena enjoyed her taste of power and decided to stay in Yerba Buena and continue her part of the deception. What could the brothers do? If they revealed that she really wasn't a goddess, they'd also have to admit that the entire premise of their cult was fake and lose everything they'd built. They had to be content with the new positions that Magdalena gave them, as her high priests, along with Magdalena's brother Eleazar, all subservient to her as the goddess Kotlikwe. Some parts of the cult that the brothers had created did continue under Magdalena. The villagers still had to give up both money and sex. But Magdalena proved herself to be a much more unstable and terrifying leader than the Hernandez brothers. We'll examine Magdalena Salisa's psychology right after this. Now, back to the story. The Hernandez brothers always appeared to be aware that they were conning the villagers and never actually believed what they were telling them about Inca gods and gold hidden in caves. But after she joined the cult in 1962, Magdalena Solis seemed to believe that she really was a goddess. Magdalena may have been suffering from some sort of psychosis. While it seems unlikely that such a person could convince others to follow her lead, a Harvard Medical School research group studied charismatic cult leaders and concluded that, quote, a subset of individuals with psychotic symptoms appears able to form intense social bonds and communities despite having an extremely distorted view of reality, end quote. It's possible that despite her religious delusions, Magdalena was also a charismatic leader, much like the other cult leaders we've looked at, such as David Koresh of the Branch Davidians and Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate. And she was certainly violent. After the murders of the two villagers, Magdalena's bloodlust only became more intense and grisly. After a few more normal rituals, normal being relative here, Magdalena again demanded a human sacrifice. Magdalena developed what she called a blood ritual to kill her next victim. She gathered the cult members back into the caves and pulled one of them forward. She said that she could sense that this person didn't believe in her enough and told the other members to kill him. It was then that she earned a nickname that would follow her for the rest of her life, 
the high priestess of blood. The villagers of Yerba Buena were so terrified and brainwashed by this point that they obeyed her. First, they beat their former friend, now victim, then slashed him with knives, burned him, then cut off his limbs. Finally, Magdalena told them to drain his blood into a chalice, where she mixed it with peyote. Magdalena drank the drug-laced blood from the chalice, then gave it to her brother, Eleazar, and the Hernandez brothers to drink, and then to the other members of the cult. Magdalena told the villagers that as the goddess Kotlikwe, she needed human blood to survive. Magdalena killed four more villagers in this manner, making her a relatively rare female serial killer. Only one in six serial killers is a woman. Researchers at Penn State identified only 64 American female serial killers active between 1821 and 2008. But the average profile of a female serial killer differs from Magdalena Solis in many ways. According to the Penn State study, a female serial killer is, quote, likely to be in her 20s or 30s, middle class, probably married, probably Christian, probably average intelligence, end quote. Female serial killers tend to gravitate toward caretaking professions like teaching or nursing, perhaps because they can find vulnerable victims in those areas. Their most frequent weapon is poison, rather than the more aggressive means that their male counterparts use for murder. As a result, and due to the public tendency to think women aren't capable of murder, female serial killers tend to get away with their crimes for longer, while also killing more victims. But Magdalena was not like most female serial killers. The biggest motivation for most female serial killers is money. But Magdalena was unique in that she got a sexual thrill from the killing, which is more commonly associated with male serial killers. Magdalena isn't the only serial killer to drink the blood of her victims. The first famous case of a serial killer drinking a victim's blood was that of Peter Curtin, also known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. He was studied by a psychologist named Dr. Carl Berg after his arrest in 1930. Dr. Berg concluded that through a variety of occurrences in his childhood and a detailed fantasy life, Curtin had become aroused by the sight of blood and killed to achieve sexual satisfaction. We believe this is also what was going on with Magdalena. Such an attraction is known as paraphilia, or a sexual attraction to an object or person that is considered by society to be extreme or unusual. Sexual sadism, pedophilia, and voyeurism are all examples of paraphilic disorders. Psychologists believe that people first develop these disorders as young children if they see them in others, and then copy the behavior, especially if the child already has trouble forming successful interpersonal relationships. A person with a paraphilic disorder then becomes obsessed with the object of their paraphilia, and sexual satisfaction often can't be reached without it. So it would be fair to assume that Magdalena must have had a troubled and disturbing childhood. And her foray into sex work as a young woman certainly wouldn't have helped to alleviate any of her developing pathologies. And with her hold over the Hernandez brothers' cult, she finally had a place where she could explore her sadistic desires to their fullest. The villagers were brainwashed and scared, and the Hernandez brothers couldn't expose Magdalena without exposing themselves. It wouldn't be for several more months that a chance event would finally trigger Magdalena's downfall. 
By then, six cult members would be dead, consumed by a bloodthirsty psychopath. By the spring of 1963, Magdalena Solis, the High Priestess of Blood, had killed six members of the Hernandez brothers' cult, and her hold over the group seemed unshakable. But one night in May of that year, a 14-year-old boy named Sebastian Guerrero wandered near the village of Yerba Buena. Although his family lived in the village, he must have been somewhat sheltered from the realities of the Hernandez brothers' cult, now run by the murderous Magdalena Solis. Drawn by the sounds and lights coming from the caves, Sebastian grew nearer. Unseen, he watched as Magdalena cut open the chest of one of the cult members and pulled out the victim's heart. He hid long enough to see Magdalena drink the victim's blood before running off in terror. Sebastian didn't run back to the village, perhaps recognizing some of the villagers in the caves and realizing that he needed to seek help further afield. Sebastian ran for over 15 miles in the dark and over difficult terrain to the nearest police station in the town of Villagran. But when he ran into the station, no doubt still terrified, the officers didn't believe his story. They dismissed his ramblings about vampires drinking blood in caves as being those of a disturbed teenager. The next morning, an officer named Luis Martinez took Sebastian back to Yerba Buena, perhaps intending on delivering him back with his parents with a stern warning not to lie to the police again. Martinez said that on the way, Sebastian could show him the caves where these alleged vampires were hiding. Reluctantly, the officer agreed. Sebastian and Officer Martinez were never seen again. When Officer Martinez didn't return to a station in Via Gran, the rest of the police officers grew concerned, remembering Sebastian's story. They contacted a larger police force stationed in Ciudad Victoria to help them investigate the disappearances. On May 31, 1963, the combined police forces of Villa Gran and Ciudad Victoria, led by Inspector Abelardo G. Gomez, converged on Yerba Buena looking for Sebastian and Officer Martinez. They found them in the caves, their bodies hacked to pieces by machetes, and with Officer Martinez's heart torn from his body. Now, finally understanding the depravity they were up against, the police approached the village of Yerba Buena itself. Magdalena and her brother Eleazar actually proved the easiest to capture. At a farm on the outskirts of the village, the police found the siblings so heavily under the influence of drugs that they were incapable of putting up a fight. But when the other cult members saw their leader being arrested, they panicked. They grabbed whatever guns they could lay their hands on, and a shootout with the police ensued. Inspector Gomez described the next moments when they cornered Santos Hernandez and the other cult members in mud houses. Quote, From inside, Santos and the others opened fire. I had my men spread out and take cover, and we systematically shot up the mud so that no one inside could stay alive. When we went in, they were all on the floor, dead, Santos with them, end quote. Other cult members scattered into the nearby caves. All were eventually apprehended, with the exception of the other Hernandez brother, Cayetano, 
who had been murdered by cult member Jesus Rubio during the shootout. Apparently, Rubio believed that if he killed Cayetano, he would become a high priest and the gods would protect him from the police. With the Hernandez brothers dead, the Solis siblings in custody, and the rest of the cult members, numbering nearly two dozen, arrested, the police could finally investigate the full extent of the cult's crimes. In addition to the bodies of Sebastian Guerrero and Officer Ramirez, they found the dismembered corpses of six cult members, bringing the death total to eight. Astonishingly, even though Magdalena was behind bars, the cult members refused to testify against her. Perhaps they were still scared of her, or perhaps they believed that the gods would still somehow save her. Coercive persuasion, or brainwashing, can be so extreme in cult environments that the behavioral effects last even after a cult member leaves or escapes, according to The Psychology of the Cult Experience, written by Glenn Collins for The New York Times. The effects of brainwashing can begin to take hold in as little as two days. Especially in a town as isolated as Yerba Buena, brainwashing these cult members into submission would have been a relatively easy task. I'm assuming these brainwashing techniques are hard to shake. Family members of people who have left cults describe their loved ones as being completely changed after their cult involvement. Where they were previously self-possessed and full of life, former cult members can display changed behavior like having a flat affect when speaking, being humorless, almost zombie-like. Dr. John G. Clark, who has studied hundreds of former cult members, states that, quote, in some respects, the destructive effects of cult conversions amount to a new disease in an era of psychological manipulation, end quote. Among former cult members, he has observed many common characteristics, including depression, guilt, fear, paranoia, slow speech, rigidity of facial expression and body posture, indifference to physical appearance, passivity, and memory impairment. So how can former cult members hope to recover from their experiences? According to researchers, in order to be deprogrammed, a former cult member needs information about how the cult operates and how they became brainwashed in the first place. They'll also need the support of their family and friends. So it's certainly possible for former cult members to recover their lives after their experiences. Although in this case, where everyone's family and friends were involved in the same cult, the deprogramming process would be understandably harder. Without the testimony of the cult members as witnesses to the other killings, Magdalena and her brother Eleazar could only be charged with the murders of Sebastian Guerrero and Officer Ramirez. In the fall of 1963, the siblings were tried and both sentenced to 50 years each for the murders. The fact that the other cult members were uneducated and impoverished was seen as a mitigating factor in their sentencing for the other six murders. So the cult members received a relatively light sentence at 30 years apiece. It would be many years before any of them were able to talk about their experiences and finally recognize the cult for what it was. And even though the Hernandez brothers began the cult, it was Magdalena who truly pushed it to the depths of depravity. For her crimes and sadism, Magdalena Solis would forever be known by a different name, the High Priestess of Blood. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. 
Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. You can find cults in all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Claire Epstein and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 